Greetings, parish orphans and retrogrades. Today is Friday, February the 11th, and it is a special day here on Rules for Retrogrades because we have a moderated debate. I'm used to being the debater, not the moderator. I will be the mod, but it's also a special date. And of course, we chose this day purposively because it is the nine year anniversary of the announced resignation by Benedict the 16th today, February the 11th, 2013, a faded day in recent world and church history, world, world historical date, red letter date. And in, I won't say honor, but in notoriety of the day, we're going to have some facts only style rules for retrogrades debate. That's, that's what we do here. Just, just the facts as much as we can glean them, excise them, cut the, the meat from the bone, and give it to you guys, the, uh, the meat-hungry parish orphans and retrogrades out there. So, yeah, not on a Friday. We'll, 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 have a, we'll have a meatless Friday, but this is your proverbial uh, meat from the bone. So we have two debaters of, uh, of distinguished uh, stature, and we appreciate both of their time. I'm going to be describing for the next couple of minutes the way that we'll proceed here. It's not going to be uh, overly formal or anything, but we do have to observe some basic rules of time, and we'll observe some uh, basic etiquettal norms, which is to say, introduce them. Our very debate is this. Um, are you ready for it? Here's, here's what it is. The resignation of Benedict XVI was invalid due to substantial error resolved, right? So the proposition today is uh, distinguished professor, Dr. Ed Matza, a formal full professor of history at Azusa Pacific University and host of the Bar of History at virginmostpowerfulradio.org. Matza is the author of The Scholastics and the Jews, Coexistence, Conversion, and the Medieval Origins of Tolerance from Angelico Press. His online classes, which you should go check out, in church history and world history are available at edmundmatza.com. We will put his website up on the show notes uh, after this debate, this exciting debate. Okay, the con position, the contra, let's say, is Mr. Stephen O'Reilly, a graduate of the University of Dallas and the Georgia Institute of Tech. He writes for the blog Roma Locuta Est. He has had articles appear in the old Catholic Answers magazine called The Rock. This Rock, sorry, The Rock is Dwayne Johnston or whatever. <laughs> large, a large man of note. Uh, he's also had articles appear for 1 Peter 5 and LifeSite News. He is working on a historical fiction trilogy entitled Pia Fidelis in the time of the Arian crisis and the rise of Julian the Apostate. This is the first book from that series. And we will list in the show notes a place where you can go get it. Uh, book one is Pia Fidelis, The Two Kingdoms. It's available for order. I just held it up on Amazon and many other sites. He's a former intelligence officer who served in the clandestine services of the CIA. So... Why, cover your drink when you're having a drink at a bar with uh, Mr. O'Reilly. He lives in Georgia with his wife, Margaret. He has four sons uh, and a new granddaughter. 
Mazel tov, as they say in, in the uh, the old five place. months old. Five months old this weekend. Oh, beautiful auguri, as we say, as we Roman Catholics say. Okay, so the pro position will be Dr. Matza and Perjorfins and retrogrades. Here's how today's um, loosely Lincoln Douglas style debate will work. First off. I've given you their bios. My uh, biographical background with regard to debate is I was a debate coach the first year I, I taught high school. I was a Federalist Society president, and we, we, we made debates happen on law school in the right direction. Of course, I have, uh, I'm working on third graduate degree in philosophy and, and trained in the law and lots of forensics training in the law. So normally I, I, I started my public career if you will, as a debater, I'll be the mod today. And what I've found that is the most useful for people is loose boundaries, uh, which is more Oxford style debate. But if you're going to moderate it, the only thing that ought to be strict is time zones, right? That the, the, when you're up, you're up. So what we'll do is the pro goes first. That'll be Dr. Mata, Ed, and you'll have 10 minutes. Next will be the Contra which will be Mr. O'Reilly, Stephen, uh, 10 minutes for you. And then right after that, there will be a divider, a dividing line. I will tell you, okay, enough, but then we're going to snake it. So there will be a six minute reply that Steve will make to Ed. So it'll go Steve, then Steve, then a six minute reply for Ed and then we're not gonna we're not gonna snake it all the way down. Then we'll have two more six minute replies for each man, and it'll just alternate there. Ten minute closing statement, beginning with Doctor Matza, ending with Mister O'Reilly. Fini, right? And it'll it'll be a thing of beauty. But again, before we get into it, which will be momentarily, everyone say a prayer for the church. As far as you're willing, say a prayer for the Pope. I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't pray for the intentions of Pope Francis, but I do pray uh, that the man has some sort of uh, moral and religious conversion to Roman Catholicism. And um, that's, that's what we do here on the ninth anniversary of the announcement of Benedict's resignation, February the 11th, 2013. Folks out there with no feigned uh, perfect objectivity, I, I, I believe um, that that for the time Francis is Pope, you know, and the declaratory power of the church shouldn't be nullified. Right. The church has a declaratory power that a lot of folks like myself who don't like Francis, who doubt Francis in various ways, who don't like the fallout after Vatican II and, and doubt the intents of Vatican II in various ways. A lot of uh, trads and I part ways when it comes to the declaratory power the declaratory office of the church. It's, um, I believe, uh, Francis is Pope until the church says he's not. And that, that's where we get into the teeth of today's debate. So without further ado, I give you, I'm going to read this. Uh, I'm going to get it up on my phone. I'm going to read this resolved one more time. Then we're going to begin 10 minutes opening statement by Dr. Matza, then by Mr. O'Reilly. Uh, and the result is this, the resignation of Benedict XVI was invalid due to substantial error. Timer, are you ready, Miss Gordon? And this is for Mazza, right? Yeah, and this is for, for Ed Mazza. Okay, we'll, we'll, starts, I'll start the timer yeah, we'll, we'll begin whenever you begin, uh, Ed. Good luck. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, 
The average person thinks that Pope Benedict resigned nine years ago this month and quite validly, but this is a surface level observation. So let me use an analogy. Let me bring in uh, Sherlock Holmes. This is uh, the Sherlock corpse scenario. Imagine a body found in a room which was locked from the inside. The corpse has a bullet wound in the right side of the head, and there's a gun that's just been fired in his right hand. A conclusion that explains all the facts? Suicide. But no, that's just one possible explanation of some of the facts. I maintain it's the same way with those who insist that Benedict resigned validly. They have a surface level solution they like, and they're choosing to ignore anything that can be seen that does not comply with it. For example, Mr. O'Reilly on his website says, quote, there is no reason or evidence, no evidence that should lead one to reject the validity of Pope Benedict XVI's resignation. Well, let's return to our corpse scenario. A deeper examination of the scene would reveal that there is a, a coffee mug with the handle pointing to the left, pen and paper on the left side of the phone, because he held the phone with his right and took messages with his left. The man was obviously left-handed. Now, it's highly <laughs> unlikely that a left-handed man would shoot himself on the right side of his head. He'd have to be some kind of contortionist. Conclusion, someone broke into his apartment and murdered him. Only explanation of all of the facts. Now, in the case of Benedict, a conclusion that explains all of the facts must answer these questions. Why did Pope Benedict XVI choose to become Pope Emeritus instead of remaining Cardinal Ratzinger when there has never been such an office in the church's 2000 year history? Why does he still issue apostolic blessings in his own name when only a Pope can do that? Why is his proper form of address his holiness, when only a pope can be called that? And why did he choose to continue wearing papal white because, quote, there were no black cassocks available in the city of Rome? It's time to be like Sherlock Holmes and dig deeper. Now, the church is governed by the 1983 Code of Canon Law. That code is written in Latin, but I will use the English. Now, Canon 331 deals with the Roman pontiff, and it very specifically says it's by virtue of his office. The word is munis. By virtue of his munis, he possesses supreme, full, immediate, and universal ordinary power in the church. So accordingly, Canon 332.2 says, if it happens that the Roman pontiff resigns his office, munis, it is required for validity that the resignation is made freely 
and properly manifested. Well, let's turn to the words of Pope Benedict XVI nine years ago today, the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes. And he says, and again, the original is in Latin, but I will give you the English. Uh, and I won't read the whole uh, declaration. I'll just read part of it. My strengths, owing to an advanced age, are no longer suited to an adequate administration of the Petrine Munis. I am well aware that this Munis, because of its essential spiritual nature, must be carried out not only with words and deeds, but no less with prayer and suffering. Well, so far so good. And at the conclusion of his Declaratio, he says the following, quote, well aware of the seriousness of this act, with full freedom, I declare that I renounce the ministry of the Bishop of Rome, successor of St. Peter. And in the Latin, the word is not munis, it's ministerio. Why was he using munis throughout his declaratio, but at the very end, when it comes to the actual renunciation, he used ministerio or ministry? Well, let me enlighten the situation by quoting Benedict himself. He was interviewed by Peter Sievold in a book that was published in 2016, Benedict XVI, Last Testament. The original is in German. I'm going to read the English. Peter Sievold puts the question to Benedict quite directly. Quote, is a slowdown in the ability to perform reason enough to climb down from the chair of Peter? And how should Benedict answer that? Yes, but that's not what Benedict says. When Seawald asks him, is a slowdown in the ability to perform reason enough to climb down from the chair of Peter, Benedict says, one can make that accusation, but it would be a functional misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. The successor of Peter is not merely bound to a function. The office, i.e. munis, enters into your very being. Now, if an office enters into your very being, you haven't lost it, which is in keeping with his declaratio, where he only renounced the ministry and not the office, not the munis. And this is the crux of the matter, because Mr. O'Reilly is likely to tell you that munis and ministerium are just synonyms for one another. And we can debate that at some point, I'm sure, today. But that's not my main point. The crux of the matter is that Benedict does not understand office as something that can be lost. In other words, the traditional understanding of the papacy is that it is an office which has jurisdiction. It's not uh, something that you receive sacramentally, like the priesthood, which stays with you forever. 
that's the traditional understanding of the papacy. It's an office that you can resign from and then you don't have it anymore. Two minutes, Ed. Thank you. But because of Vatican II and because Ratzinger was an expert at Vatican II and because he is a member of Communio, right? That was the name of his magazine. And because he's among these Nouvelle theologians, they, um, they don't believe, and I can go into more detail during the debate, they don't believe that jurisdiction or the power to rule is separate from Episcopal consecration. In other words, a bishop, and this is Vatican II, a bishop, when he is made a bishop, Episcopal consecration, Vatican II says it gives the recipient the munis to rule. Now, that was different from the previous understanding of this, where the power to rule is actually given to you from the pope. But to make a long story short, the problem with thinking that the office of the pope or the office of a bishop, I should say, uh, is sacramental and the power to rule comes from the sacrament is you can never lose that power to rule. Uh, let me just give a couple of quick quotations from Ratzinger, and he's spoken on this subject for 60 years. He says, we have no more right to speak of a ruling power neatly separated from the sacramental ministry then we have a right to speak of a separation between the mystical and Eucharistic body of Christ. Now, throughout this debate, I will bring evidence to bear from the horse's mouth on this subject. Perfect. Okay, man, perfect time. Like, it sounded like Dave Chappelle there. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Very nicely uh, done. Thank you for the opening statement, Dr. Matza. Mr. Stephen O'Reilly, you have the contra position. Uh, you will negate the result position, and we'll begin your 10 minutes whenever you begin speaking. Great. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Hey, I'd like to thank you for hosting this debate. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Matza for uh, extending the invitation to debate this issue. I think it is an important issue. Um, so I think I'll just uh, jump right into it. Now, Dr. Matza has kind of given an overview of uh, his view uh, I think what we'll see over the next, uh, whatever it is, hour, hour and a half, uh, to prove his case, Dr. Motz is going to take you on a journey across 60 to 70 years, tell you what Benedict uh, believed about munis, believed about jurisdiction, all these things uh, uh, regarding the munis or being papal somehow after his resignation. Uh, he's going to tell you that uh, he's going to come to this uh leap of logic that this, all these things add up to an error on Benedict's part about his understanding of the munis and remaining papal in some way. And then he's going to make a further step. And this is his, this is the crux of what he has to prove for substantial error. He has to prove that Benedict would not have resigned had he understood his view was an error. So a couple leaps of logic. Did he make these errors? Did he really believe this in the way that Dr. Matza is going to describe? Uh, going back in history throughout, going back to Vatican II, some comedy made in 1987, some book he wrote whenever, uh, you know, Peter Seewald 
interview and trying to cobble all this together, or, and also what Gon Swain said, what the last audience said, and try to cobble this all together into a theory that uh, he intended to, or he misunderstood the nature of the munis somehow, and that he would remain papal. Even though he has never written any, you know, codified any understanding of what he views to be uh, uh, the Pope Emer Emeritus uh, title to mean, uh, what we do know is, is that I think he did not even reveal what his titles would be until I think the day before his effective resignation. And I think that was released in a Vatican news release. It wasn't even at the pen of, uh, of Benedict. So, you know, so, so his understanding is kind of obscure. So I'm not, I, I'm not going to defend, I'm not here to defend all the things he's done uh, in how he, how he resigned the See of Peter. Uh, some of these things are certainly confusing to the faithful. That he still wears white uh, is confusing. Uh, that he still is called His Holiness, uh, and possibly, possibly to an extent, Pope Emeritus, but I'm not, I personally am not so uh, concerned about that one. Uh, that he gives apostolic blessings, certainly, uh, but, you know, there are explanations for some of these things. I mean, he does, on the other hand, he doesn't wear the red shoes, he doesn't wear, which is a symbol of authority, he doesn't wear the mozetta, um, he had his papal reign destroyed or defaced, I'm not quite sure what happened to it, but I know Gonswing spoke about witnessing uh, him taking off the fisher fisherman's ring. Uh, uh, he laid down the pallium uh, at the uh, tomb. Now, this was, what, back in 2011 at the tomb of uh, Celestine V. Uh, I think symbolizing that, I think, looking forward to the future, that someday he might resign. So here, so there's all these other symbols that are really not discussed by uh, the, uh, the, the Benny Plenis side of the, the debate. Uh, regarding apostolic blessings, real quick. Now, apostolic blessings, now, others can give them. Of course, they're delegated uh, from the apostolic see. Uh, I'm only aware of, there might be some other letters. I'm not aware of all the occasions where he has given apostolic blessings. But I think in a, one, of the, one of the occasions cited is, is a letter to Bramuel, which was a private letter. I think, I think he said, with my apostolic blessing, at the very end of a very short letter, uh, you know, how did he mean that? I think certainly let's ask him. I mean, I wish uh, maybe the Benny Plenists, Dr. Matza and others should come up with a list of five or 10 questions, maybe get him to Seawald and say, hey, you have access to this guy. You know, ask these questions. I think they're fair questions to ask. But I think in the end, they all do not sum up to him being Pope still. Uh, you know, it could be that uh, before leaving the papacy, he delegated to the future Pope Emeritus himself the authority or the, the 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 right to continue giving apostolic blessings. Maybe Francis gave it to him. We don't know. And and him saying my my apostolic blessing, that could just be shorthand. It doesn't mean he's saying it's really mine. You know, I don't know, but I think that's probably the more likely solution than he believes himself still to be pope. Uh, so with, with that being said, uh, at his core, Dr. Mata is here to tell you what he believes, uh, Benedict. Uh, how, how Benedict um, believes himself to be Pope in some way or, or, or have the munis still or be papal in some way and that there's this leap of logic, like I said, that he's going to uh, uh, he's going to somehow, he would not have resigned if he'd known he would lose that kind of munis that he thought he would keep as a Pope Emeritus. Um, there's a lot of thought reading going on here and I'd like to read from uh Cardinal Bramuller, I think, kind of addressed talking about the resignation, in fact, was that there's you know, two Roman uh, legal dictums, that, which I think kind of apply here. It's de internis non judicat praetor. So excuse my Latin pronunciation. I did not take Latin. 
but the meaning of that is a judge does, does a judge does not judge internal things. The other quote that Bram Mueller uh, used was "quad non est in actus, non est in mundo." What is not in the acts, the process, or not in the world. So, in judging the validity, Bram Mueller went on to say, "We have to look at the facts and the documents. You always have to keep in mind that the law speaks of verifiable facts, not of thoughts." But what Dr. Motz's theory is is piecing together what uh, Benedict over. 50 years might have thought, but we don't have a systemized view of what he really believes and what that would mean to a former pope. So I think what we need to do is look at the documents themselves. And in that regard, uh, that's where we come to the Declaratio. Now, we can get to the Latin, uh, as he says, but yeah, just reading again the, uh, the punchline uh, for the Declaratio, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, uh, Benedict said, uh, for, for this reason, again, he's noting uh, just, just real quickly, uh, Dr. Uh, Matza had pointed out that early on uh, that uh, Benedict had used the word munis, so he said that because of his weaknesses and so forth, that he's giving up, the, that, that he's, he's no longer able to exercise the munis. And later on in the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Declaratio, he talks about how he switches the word from munis to ministerium. And there he says again, though, he links why he, he says he has no longer the strength to exercise uh, the ministerium. So you see the two things are linked, that he lacks the strength. The two things are, by force of logic, the same thing. He does use two different words, but uh, the two words can be used interchangeably. Uh, we, we look When we look at documents, we look at the common usage, uh, the common uh, definitions of these words, and if you look at the definitions of lunus and ministerium, uh, others, this is not just, I'm, I'm not a Latinist in any size, shape, or form, but others have looked at this issue. Uh, Ryan Grant, for example, wrote a, a great uh, article in 1 Peter 5 where he lays out that the two words in their definitions include uh, duty, office, service, are amongst some of the definitions. So the two words can be used interchangeably. Uh, why did he do so? Uh, you know, sometimes people, and I think uh, Mr. Grant pointed this out in his article, uh, was saying that two minutes, Steve. Two minutes. Some people will um, yeah, just, it, for for the, for the sake of the clarity of the prose, switch words, uh, or it could be that the the word uh, ministerium was more personal, a personal touch. But it's clear if you read this 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 line here, he talks about. He's going to resign the ministry. I renounce the ministry of the Bishop of Rome, successor of Peter, entrusted to me by the Cardinals on 19 April 2005 in such a way that on February 28, 2013, the See of Rome, the See of Peter, will be vacant and a new conclave would have to be called. Nothing could be clearer that regardless of the definitions, he is vacating the See of Peter and a new conclave needs to be called. If there is nobody sitting on the chair of Peter, there's no one with the munis. There's no one with the ministry, and he's calling for a new conclave, for a new pontiff. There can only be one pontiff at a time, and that was Benedict the uh, Sixteenth, who left office on the twenty-eighth of February. Thank you. Okay, lovely, Stephen O'Reilly. You have six minutes to rebut any points from Dr. Motz's opening, or add in points that you've heard him. Uh, make before rebuttals or really add in anything else yeah yeah that. yeah yeah okay then, then, then in terms of the, the munis uh yes the it, it is true 
that oh, it, it is it is true uh, that the munis is is used in uh, Canon three three thirty two section two. It does say what if if the Roman pontiff uh, renounces the munis, uh, then it then it goes on. It, it is required that it be done freely and uh, uh, what properly manis, manifested. But the oops, excuse me. Uh, the what I dream of genie. What what the what the uh, uh, what the canon does not say, it doesn't say that saying the word munis is required. That's just simply not required in it. Uh, that's reading into the text. Uh, if you look back over the course of, uh, uh, well, I mean, what, what common sense dictates is, it just should be clear from the text. You know, when you're reading a document, is it clear from the text or what's going on in this papal act? Uh, and the uh, word munis is not required, even though he does use it up front and then transitions to ministerium. But if you look in the history of papal resignations, going back to Cel Celestine the 15th, uh, after he resigned, Boniface the eighth uh, put into the Liber Sextus, uh, the, the, the canon allowing for the papacy, for someone to, to uh, resign the papacy. But he, he uses the word papacy there. And then in the text of his uh, teaching on that, where he uses apostolic authority, he uses the word Roman pontiff may resign freely. So you have several words already, two words that could be used. So the point is what what the uh, what is clear is is that the Roman that the declaratio need only clearly express the mind of Fran of, of Benedict, who is the supreme law lawgiver in the church. His acts can't be uh, <laughs> can't be appealed. Uh, it it just is what it is. And it's clear enough from the document that he intended to resign the papacy fully. He's vacating the see of Peter. He calls for election of a new pontiff. Now, there's another act, another document which uh, Benny Plenis don't really address, or actually I've never seen anyone address it, and that's Normus Nonulus. And what that is, is uh, a few days before his resignation, uh, Benedict uh, promulgated a new document, a uh, papal document, which made some changes to the University Dominus Gregis, which is where the, where the papal regulations put in place by uh, John Paul II, and he made some changes. And one of those, that was to necessitate the fact that he's resigning, and this would allow the cardinals to call the conclave possibly earlier. So this, these, these changes were specifically intended by him for the coming conclave necessitated by his resignation. And one thing he did not change from uh, uh, UDG was from the University's Dominus Gregis was this section. Even though he changed other sections, he left this intact, which means he was happy with this. He says, after his, after his acceptance, the person elected, if he had only uh, received Episcopal ordination as immediately Bishop of Rome, uh, Bishop of the Church of Rome, true Pope and head of the College of, of Bishops, he thus acquires and can exercise full and supreme power over the universal church. Uh, so he's saying he, he knows both in the Declaratio and in uh, uh, Normus Nonulus, that he is not going to be Pope. He's not going to be the true Pope. Someone else has that. And he knows from, and I think uh, Dr. Mazza had already read, read from it, uh, Canon 331, the Bishop of, Bishop of the Church of Rome, in whom resides the office given in a special way by the Lord to Peter. It resides, the Munis only, only resides the Petrine Munis only resides in the Bishop of Rome or Pope. He resigned that. So he does not have the Munis. So there is real no debate. 
about him maintaining it after he had resigned being Bishop of Rome and being Pope. Uh, so I, I think uh, those issues are really non-starters. Now, I think another issue is this question about uh, being Pope Emeritus. I don't know how much time, Tim, how much time do I have on this so far? You're a little over a minute 30. Should be, should Left. be enough time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with Pope, Pope Emeritus. Now, even with founding that office, I, I don't think it's so new. If you look at the, his letter to uh, Cardinal Bramuller, where Bramuller had written an article in, Germ in a German magazine, uh, kind of being disappointed, saying he was disappointed in uh, uh, Benedict using that term. And Benedict responded saying, well, that's what all these other popes were, former popes were. If not that, what else? So it's clear that Benedict, rightly or wrongly, and if we want to hat tip to Dr. Bonza, but he thought that all the other former popes were emeritus, in fact, if not in name. So really, from Benedict's standpoint, all he was really doing was giving a, a name to this, uh, uh, to this uh, reality of the Pope emeritus. And emeritus itself, uh, if you look at canon law, canon 185, it says anyone who resigns an office due to age or uh, uh, age or resignation uh, loses the office, but they can use the title emeritus. So already, even though that, that canon didn't apply strictly to the Pope or, or at all to the Pope, the, the, uh, the analogy is there of applying this, that emeritus is used when you lose your office. It says loss of office due to resignation. Uh, so you can see what kind of example that Benedict was looking at here. So he, he knew he lost his office and that's why he used emeritus. So in that sense, Pope emeritus means essentially former Pope. He is no longer a Pope in any size, shape, or term. The word. All right, there's a, there's a time. Uh, sorry, Steve. Sure. Okay, good. Uh, Good job. So, so far we have uh, opening statement one, opening statement two, and reply number one by the contraposition, which is Mr. O'Reilly. Uh, Dr. Matza, you can make your reply to the remarks Steve just made. You have six minutes from whenever you begin talking. Parish orphans and retrogrades out there listening, depending on your relative familiarity with the terms of this debate, uh, those uh, like Dr. Matza who first in 2014, 2015, 2016, began to publicly question the validity of the resignation by Pope Benedict, uh, first came up with the term uh, Benny Vicantis. Yeah, it actually was a term probably leveled at them, that they were Benny Vicantis, meaning they thought basically the seat was uh, open, you know, like a set of Vicantis believes, except it's full of Benny, uh, literally. So then the term uh, got uh, more popularized to say the Benny Plenis, that the chair is full of Benedict still uh, cute. So th these are the terms that he's uh, referring to uh, when, when Mr. O'Reilly uh, made his six minute reply. Okay, Dr. Matza, you have six minutes from the time you begin speaking. Thank you. Well, I'm perfectly willing to stipulate that for purposes of this debate, at least, that Benedict thinks that he resigned. And he thinks that uh, he was going to have a successor. So I don't see how his revision of UDG uh, comes into it. I mean, people say, how can you hold that uh, Benedict is still Pope when he clearly said he wasn't, right? 
Um, yeah, I'm willing to stipulate to that. He is like a, a, a bride or a groom who uh, thinks they got married. There was a ceremony. There was a wedding photographer. There was a wedding singer. They have two kids now, but they're not married in the eyes of God. So this happens all the time. As a matter of fact, substantial error is a, is a topic that comes up mostly with regard to, to marriage. Let me put it to you this way. Uh, a substantial error is an error in judgment. But um, there are objective aspects to this. As, as I said in my opening, the Bishop of Rome has his power due to his Episcopal office. This is a teaching of Vatican I, repeated by Vatican II, and is in Canon 332, in Canon Law today. If you are going to resign, you must uh, resign the office. In other words, your intellect has to have that in mind, and your will has to choose that. Uh, and what I'm suggesting is that it's very doubtful that that's what he did based on what he said in his declaratio, what he said over the last 60 years, and what he said over the last nine years. Um, it is doubtful whether or not the, he had the right object in mind. In other words, the, the object he would have to renounce is the office of the papacy. Um, how's the best way of explaining this? Let me give you a quick example that might uh, flesh this out. Um, from, let me give you a definition of uh, substantial error. This is from uh, an article, error invalidates the act if it is an error concerning the substance of the act. Error affects consent, for the will in an act of consent elects an object presented to it by the mind. If the mind is in error, the object is imperfectly or incorrectly presented. And the choice made upon such a premise is not always the same choice that would have been made if the object were correctly known. It's like a man saying, a man who stipulates, I will only marry a Russian imperial Romanov who then marries Natasha Romanova from Marvel Comics Avengers. He's actually committed substantial error because she's not actually a daughter or granddaughter of the last Tsar, Nicholas II. Uh, and this is the situation with, with Benedict. Um, how am I doing on time here, Tim? Two minutes, 15 seconds. So Benedict, in effect, stipulated, I will only resign the administration of the church if I can still be recognized as Pope in the sacramental ontological aspect. But if that is metaphysically impossible, in other words, if Pope Emeritus is metaphysically impossible, then he committed substantial error. And according to Canon 188, and for that matter, natural law, that makes his renunciation invalid. Canon 188 says, a resignation made out of grave fear 
that is inflicted unjustly or out of malice, substantial error, or simony is invalid by the law itself. Um, as I said before in my opening, and as I will get into throughout the course of this debate, Benedict is on record as saying Episcopal power cannot be lost. It's not an office that's given to you. It, your, your power to rule comes to you when you are consecrated. And um, I'll just I'll finish with this quotation. The former rector of the Gregorian University in Rome, Gianfranco Ghirlanda, said the greatest difficulty that arises from the affirmation that the primatial power of the Pope comes from the Episcopal consecration is that in the event that the Pope resigns from his office, not because of death, he would never lose this power as it is conferred by a sacramental act which has an indelible character. Nice. Okay, so that is uh, your little little uh, time to spare. Well stated in both opening statements and both replies. Uh, Steve, we bat the ball back to you for another six minutes to reply to the most recent things that Dr. Monza just said. Yeah, sure. Uh, looking at the Code of Canon Law, text and commentary by Corden, Green, and Heinschel, substantial error is a mistaken judgment that is not of minor importance and is truly a cause of the consequent resignation. Um, perhaps there are other you know, commentaries that I've seen that give a more detailed explanation or allowance for these stipulational things. I can't say I'm not aware of them. I, I, if if uh, I'd like to see the citation that allows that complicated of a, uh, a substantial error when it comes to the resignation from an office in the church, um, it might be, I'm not denying it. I'm just curious to see, it's just a question of curiosity. But the examples, some of the examples that are given though, uh, from the commentaries, uh, one example from the new commentary of the code of canon law, example would be a diocesan finance officer who mistakenly thinks one must resign when a new bishop is named, even though one's term is not expired. Uh, Cardinal Bramuller in an interview, I think it was LifeSite News, said if a Pope decided to resign because he thought Islamic troops were invading the Vatican, the resignation would be invalid if the Islamic troops were, were, weren't in fact invading. Now, of course, we don't have anything like that in the case of Benedict. Now, uh, we do know Benedict's reasons for resigning because he told us. He said he had incapacity due to lack of strength and his energy. These were the true causes of his resignation. Nothing about uh, what he might have done or would he have stayed on, stayed, would he stayed on as Pope if he knew he wouldn't get this, uh, uh, you know, or keep this papal or Munis type thing that uh, Dr. Maas is talking about. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's doubtful based on what he said. But Benedict said he had a moral obligation. If you, if you lack the strength and the power and energy to continue in papacy, he said in a Seawald interview back, I think it's 2010, and he, and he basically reiterated that type of thought in some of the subsequent Seawald interviews, he said, if uh, you, you lack this, uh, the Pope, uh, he, there's a moral obligation to leave. So if there's a moral obligation because of his lack of strength, that moral obligation is not mitigated or, or negated by the fact that he might not get what he, what he thinks he's gonna get afterwards. The obligation is that he could not exercise his papacy uh, due to those lacks of strength. So 
we know we we know he's told us what he thinks. Uh, Dr. Mata is guessing what he thinks, and I think that's not a basis to throw the whole church into uh, or destabilize the entire church based on you know thinking well if, he, if this theory is like this and maybe he thought this and then he wouldn't have resigned. Pure speculation, 100% speculation. I go back to what Bram Mueller said. We don't judge the thoughts. We don't know the judge. We don't know the thoughts. We can't go inside. What we are left with are, are the acts themselves. He resigned the papacy. Uh, that's clear. Uh, uh, Canon 331, which uh, for, uh, Benedict was certainly uh, aware of because it is in the pontifical section of the canon law, says that the munis resides solely, uniquely in the Bishop of Rome. When he gives that up, he gave up the munis. So a lot, some of this talk that he has about uh, 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 where he talks about still being a father and all that, or even the ontology of it. That's certainly in a moral sense. Uh, he's not thinking that he has uh, the grace of the papacy still in him or anything like that. I think that's a gross misreading of what he said. And I guess we can go into the last audience and, or even the Gonswain. Uh, but even though I think Gonswain is kind of a ridiculous thing to even bring up. But uh, I think there's, there's nothing there at all for, uh, to really say that he intended to uh, keep the office. Uh, and, or, and I think in terms of why he gave it up, it's clear. He lacked the strength, he had a moral obligation. So anything else that Dr. Maz is talking about is irrelevant, had nothing to do. So therefore there is no substantial error on that ground. So I, I, think, I think that's pretty clear. Uh, Tim, how much time do I have left here? 145. Let's see here. And I then, uh, so you don't lose time. And the question of Emeritus now, since that's come up a couple of times, when you talk about even just even in in kind of like professional life, someone's a a professor Emeritus, he's no longer, it's something that he no longer is. It's it's, it's an honorary title. And I think that's all we're talking about when we're talking about uh, Benedict. I think it's reading way too much into it. We saw in Canon 185 where it says that the title of emeritus can be conferred upon a person who loses an office by reason of age or by resignation. Granted, that did not apply when written to uh, popes, but that you can see that's this type of example. And that's an admission, loss of office, that he is not in his office anymore. He doesn't have, uh, he's, he's, not, he's not pope in any size, shape, or form. Um, uh, let's see what else. Uh, one minute, Steve. one minute. Okay, yeah. So, I, so I think the title of em- Emeritus is actually a proof against uh, his claim, Dr. Mazza's claim. If you look at some of the Seawald interviews, he says to Seawald, the word Emeritus, when he's speaking of the bishop and the history of the title, the word Emeritus, Emeritus said that he had, speaking of the bishop, he had totally given up his office but his spiritual link to his former diocese was now properly recognized. So again, it's a moral responsibility. You know, your, your father, you know, you might not run the family business or you, you're old, you, uh, and we can get later some of the examples that Benedict gave. Uh, you still have like a fatherhood. There's like a responsibility, but uh, uh, there that he, he, he feels to pray for the church and all that. But even here, Benedict says to Seawald, it's a giving up of the office. So it, it, again, it's just a recognition that uh, that Benedict did not think uh, Emeritus meant anything special. Okay, Steve. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Sorry for the abruptness of it. It's always no a little bit uh, a little bit irritating to be interrupted. 
Dr. Matza, you may reply to Steve's replies. Six minutes. Sure thing. Uh, since, uh, since Steve brought up the issue of emeritus, let me start with that. So a bishop emeritus is something which happened after Vatican II. There was no such thing before Vatican II. Okay? And the idea behind it is that the bishop, when he uh, reaches uh, retirement age, will give up the practical administration, but he doesn't give up being a bishop. So if you are a Pope Emeritus, you give up the practical administration, but you don't stop being papal. Let me expand this further. You see, I maintain that Benedict in his declaratio and in his actions stipulated I will only resign if I can be Pope Emeritus. Now, if there's a problem ontologically with being Pope Emeritus, then he has committed substantial error on the face of it. I don't have to read his thoughts. It's on the face of it. It's objective. It's verifiable. So let's take the example of Pope Emeritus. Um, you see, this is something I learned in my initial research and that is that being vicar of Christ is something that has been joined to being bishop of Rome. But originally they were separate because Peter was the vicar of Christ before he was the bishop of Rome. Uh, now, theologians, the majority view of the theologians throughout the centuries is that vicar of Christ and B bishop of Rome or see of Rome are so united that they can never be separated. That's the majority view. So if he becomes bishop, or I should say Pope Emeritus, and if the new Pope is Pope Francis, well then Francis is the Bishop of Rome and Ratzinger is the Bishop Emeritus of Rome. But we can't leave it at that because just as the Bishop of Rome is inextricably tied to Vicar of Christ, so too, if a man claims to be Pope Emeritus, implicitly, he must be declaring that he is also Vicar of Christ Emeritus. Because the office of Bishop of Rome is inextricably linked to Vicar of Christ. So if you become the Bishop Emeritus of Rome, you automatically become the Vicar of Christ Emeritus. And as um, Stephen just read for us, Ratzinger insists that he has a spiritual ontological connection to the Sea of Rome that cannot be broken. He said that to Seewald repeatedly. And there's a problem with that. Uh, we might grant him that you can be a bishop emeritus, but you can't be a vicar of Christ emeritus because that would mean that the vicar of Christ is somehow being shared. The spiritual power of the Vicar of Christ is somehow being shared by two people, and that's impossible. So he said, I will only resign if I can be Pope Emeritus. But that's like saying a square circle. There is no such thing as Pope Emeritus because it's not the same as Bishop Emeritus. In his mind, he thinks it's the same, but it's not. That's called substantial error. 
that's textbook. Um, and we have evidence from him and from those close to him to back this up. Um, for example, uh, I could look at the statement of Ganswine, who is his right hand and takes care of him now that he's old and ill. Um, Ganswine said in his speech at the Greg, before and after his resignation, Benedict understood and understands his task as a participation in the Petrine Munis. And he says, Ganswine, Benedict has not abandoned the office of Peter, something which would have been entirely impossible for him after his irrevocable acceptance of the office in April 2005. The bare minimum condition for resigning is giving up the office, and that's the one thing he didn't do. You have a remaining minute, Ed. Would you like to uh, see sure. that? Uh, no, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to add another uh, phrase or two to this. Um, Benedict is very clear, and I, I won't be able to read the whole thing now. I'll have to get to the rest of it later. But Benedict is on record as saying that you, as a bishop, you don't lose your power to govern. It's given to you in your Episcopal consecration. I'm sorry, was that the? No, that's my phone. Okay. My apologies. No, okay. we'll, we'll add a blame, couple, couple seconds. Actually. We'll blame it on Barbara Eden. By the way, mm -hmm. she's, she's 90 years old now. She's, she's, she's in Benedict's uh, category. Um, <laughs> Benedict says, she's still alive. So um, Benedict says that, uh, what's a good quote from him? I think we should be honest enough to admit the temptation of mammon in the history of the church and to recognize to what extent it was a real power that worked to the distortion and corruption of both church theolo uh, theology, even to their inmost core, the separation of office as jurisdiction from office as right was continued for reasons of prestige and financial benefits. He doesn't see the papacy or, the, or when someone is a bishop, he doesn't see that the bishop can lose the office. Like how I'm playing that alarm for you guys there. Um, okay. So one thing that I would have each of you think about as we go into the last rebuttal phase, uh, six minutes for Steve, then six minutes for Ed is uh, whether or not you guys can tell me in your closing statements whether or not you'd be, each of you, willing to take a few questions from the viewers and listeners at the end. Okay, with that said, six minutes to Steve right now. Yeah, thank you. I, I think uh, I forget how the exact way that Dr. Bonza had said it, maybe he could uh, clarify it, but in, he's, he's reading into the Declaratio saying that in that he is, uh, that Benedict would only resign if he is or can be the uh, Pope Emeritus, or that's what he's trying to create out of Declaratio. That's just pure reading into the document. Uh, he, he did, the words, the words aren't there, the, the meaning is not there. I think that's it's just a pure uh, concoction. Uh, we had a few quotes uh, from, uh, from Pope uh, uh, Benedict when he was Cardinal Ratzinger. Again, going back years, you know, the 80s, 70s, 60s, possibly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
want ultimate context. I mean, I'd like to certainly see the context of them, but I, I don't see that they have any relevance here. We're looking at, you know, the, a vast corpus of work of Ratzinger, and we're, we're kind of looking at little things here and there and trying to create a quilt that I think really doesn't come together to be a coherent picture. What would have been nice if he had written some document where he explained the consequences that if someone's a pope and they resign, this is what happened. It gives us more uh, guidance in that. But even that would not be relevant because what he said before he was pope really doesn't matter. I mean, there's been popes who've had heretical views or had had erroneous opinions before they came pope became pope. Uh, I don't think we go back in all those cases and say, well, gee, what did he say way back then? Uh, not that like, Pius IX had heretical views on the Immaculate Conception, but you know, are we going are we, are we going to go back in time to his you know some thesis he wrote at the Greg or wherever he went? And say, well, this little line here, if you interpret it this way, what does that mean for the doctrine? I think we destabilize the church if we go back to that type of thing and, and, and kind of look and kind of cherry pick quotes to say this somehow affects our understanding of what is otherwise very clear in in the Declaratio. Um, now, with the Pope Emeritus uh, question, uh, he says, now, yes, you talk about a, a Pope, a, a Bishop Emeritus is, you might, you might say it's different than a Pope Emeritus, certainly, but we're, he's looking for an analogy. He's not making, you know, a, a univocal comparison between the two. He says, uh, uh, see, we'll ask him, we'll just, just to repeat, uh, Benedict had said the word emeritus, emeritus said that he had totally given up office, totally given up office, but his spiritual link to his former diocese was now properly recognized. And there he's speaking of that all these bishops were thinking, gee, I'm a, I'm a father, I just can't leave. So this was to say, okay, you, obviously you've resigned your office, but of course you still have some sort of, you know, uh, certainly a, like a moral responsibility, or if you want to call it, I think they use some, somewhere in here a spiritual mandate, uh, but it's not an office per se. It's not a continuation of being Bishop of Atlanta or Bishop of New York. You're, you're retired. You no longer have that specific office of that Bishop of, of, over that see. Uh, now, when he applies it to Pope, of course, it's by analogy. It's not a one-on-one. -on -one. So yes, there are some differences. I do think though, that if, if he had gone with, I, know, there, I think the criticism fair to go back and say, why did you really choose this? What about these difficulties, uh, uh, Benedict? But if you, uh, I think if he had gone and said, uh, well, gee, I'm going to be Bishop Emeritus of Pope or Pope or Bishop of Rome Emeritus, then people would be saying, well, gee, he's just saying he's Emeritus, emeritus of Rome and he's not really giving up the office of the papacy. Uh, like I said, Canon 185 gives us an example where it's talking about giving up the office. It's a loss of office. Emeritus could be applied as an honorary to the individual. And in this case, he chose... Uh, emeritus. I, I really don't see uh, that big of a problem with it. Um, but uh, Benedict goes on to say, he said, it's hard to see why this legal concept of the emeritus should not also be applied to the Bishop of Rome. In this formula, both things are implied. No actual legal authority any longer, but a relationship which remains even if it is invisible. Now he uses the word ontological uh, somewhere, but again, that's just a moral responsibility. You know, even you know, an adopted father is still in the true sense, you know, not in the biological sense, a father of, of somebody else. Uh, he said, this legal spiritual formula avoids any idea of there being two popes at the same time. A bishopric can only have one incumbent. Uh, Benedict clearly is saying there, <laughs> there are not two popes and he's, and he's not one of them that there were two. 
it's it's Francis is what he's saying. Uh, there can only be one Bishop of Rome. That's Francis. That's, that's clear from what he's saying right here. So I think that's just uh, reading way too much into these things. Like I said, try to cobble together a theory that uh, one minute. Creates Steve. A, uh, when it comes against a substantial error, his errors alone, even if even if you say that he actually had some of these thoughts, um, he's given up to see and everything he's, he said. The see of Peter will be vacant. A new pope needs to be elected. He's recognized that new pope will be the true popham. That's not him. So Dr. Mazda can tell us what uh, Benedict thinks he might be, but we know, in fact, we know what he is not in his, in his own mind. And I think that needs to be important, important to keep in mind here. And then the other thing is, again, we know the reasons why he resigned and this, what he would be afterwards did not figure into it because he said he had a moral obligation to resign where Pope does, and meaning him, if he lacks the strength, lacks the energy, uh, what he would have been afterwards does not enter into that, especially because it's a moral obligation. This forces me to do this, so what it may do to me afterwards, what I might lose or become, is of no consequence. So I, th I think uh, there is, there can be no sub substantial error in the canonical sense that Dr. Martin is talking. All right, thank you, Steve. So, so concludes your rebuttal period. You may begin preparing your 10 minute closing statement as Dr. Matza tends to the final six minutes of rebuttal for his end. Again, both of you in the uh, coming minutes, think about whether or not you're up for some questions from the viewers after your two closing statements. Thank you. Thank you both. Go ahead, Dr. Matza. Thank you, Tim. Peter Seewald, who knows Benedict for decades, put it to him point blank is a slowdown in the ability to perform reason enough to climb down from the chair of Peter. Now, if Benedict had answered yes, well, then Steve would win this debate. But that's not what happened. Benedict said, that's an accusation. That's a functional misunderstanding. The successor of Peter is not merely bound to a function. What does he mean by that? If you read the writings of Ratzinger, when he talks about function, it means the practical tasks. Perhaps I will address this in my closing statement. We have some words from Ratzinger from 1973 when he was analyzing the chaos in the church and how they want to reduce the priest to someone who's functional. But we'll save that for later. The fact of the matter is, Benedict said, the office enters into your being. Why did Ratzinger say that? Because he belongs to a whole school of thought with dozens of articles by different theologians over the last 50 years on this subject. I'll try to distill it in the, the time I have for rebuttal here. During the First Vatican Council in 1870, the man who was in charge of the... Uh, the documents, Monsignor Zanelli from the Holy Office wrote the following. The sovereign pontiff possesses by virtue of his office that power which is attributed to him. It is by virtue of his office, it is ordinary power. Ordinary power, as he explains, he explains it this way, what ordinary power means. It's the power, the power of the sovereign pontiff is in reality 
of the same type as that of the bishops. Ratzinger looks at that and is on record as saying that bishops don't lose their power when they become retired. They still have it in an ontological sense, in the sense that it was given to them irrevocably at their Episcopal consecration. Uh, but since I don't want it to seem, Mr. O'Reilly makes it seem as if I'm just cherry picking quotes here and there from Ratzinger, there's a whole school behind this uh, philosophy of, of the church, of ecclesiology. For example, Bishop uh, Eugenio Correco, who belongs to the Communio school, wrote this. Uh, uh, it is a power of ruling, the power of the bishop that's given to him at Episcopal consecration. It is a power of ruling that has its duties, those specific to the head of a society of Christians. For example, that of conferring tasks and offices, of pasturing the people of God, of defending the people from errors, this kind of power is not something more or less what priests also have. It is a power of a different kind that can be communicated to priests through delegation. This is the power that bishops have. And uh, Bishop Coreco goes on to say that jurisdiction as an expression of one potestas sacra or sacred power cannot be treated from the theological and juridical perspective with different criteria from those used for the power of orders. Now, I don't want to lose people here, but there's a whole theology behind this. And that is that the, the power of orders is that when you receive something in a sacrament, it stays with you. Whereas, according to the traditional view of the church, if you receive something as a grant of jurisdiction, when you leave the office, you lose you lose that. But uh, Ratzinger is on record as, as, as agreeing with men like Bishop Eugenio Coreco, uh, and uh, there's others I could, I could bring up here. Um, it, he's very clear about the fact that you can't lose this power, which is why Ratzinger is on record as saying that he has a connection to the Diocese of Rome, a spiritual ontological connection that can never be lost. And that's why uh, Ganswine in his speech at the Greg, says very clearly that uh, Ratzinger uh, has not abandoned the office of Peter. One minute, Ed. Uh, something which would have been entirely impossible for him after his irrevocable acceptance of the office. And we could look at the last general audience of, uh, of Pope Benedict when he said, I think back to 2005 when I said yes to the Lord. It's an always and a forever. I was thinking about that 1970s song. I was about to break into, <laughs> into that. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, in his mind, he thinks he's, he's, that's why it's Pope Emeritus and not Bishop Emeritus. It's why he gives apostolic blessings. It's why he's called his holiness. It's why... He said, well, there weren't any black cassocks around, so I decided to wear white. Um, there is doubt here. You know, there's a principle in law. A doubtful law does not bind. Well, a doubtful resignation does not bind either.
Nice timing. Once again, you guys have both had a very, very good clock management, if I can give you that. And, and I really appreciate both of you doing this. Parish Orbis Retrogrades Catholics, everyone knows there needs to be more legit, respectful, fact-filled dialogue. I, I appreciate uh, both of your time, uh, Dr. Matza, Mr. O'Reilly. As we move into our closing statements, uh, Ed will go first. Uh, Steve will go second, 10 minutes apiece. Do think about uh, whether or not you'd be willing to take these FAQs, not to, not to sidetrack you, you want to make a strong closing statement. I would also urge each of you to at least spend one sentence in your closing statement, if, if you would do this for the mod here, old, silly old me. What does your point of view, your side of the argument spell for the declaratory dispensatory power of the church by declaratory power. I mean, the church has to be the one as the sovereign of Christ on earth. It's not just in this sense, the Pope, that's the vicar, right? The sovereign of Christ on earth has this declaratory power. And those declarations are important. How does your side of the debate respond to this? Also, uh, just say at the end of your 10 minutes, if you would uh, be so willing to take FAQs. We've got questions even from Pat Coffin, lots in the uh, in the chat here. Okay, go ahead. We'll start your 10 minutes once you begin, Ed. Okay, I will begin. In his work, The Keys of This Blood, Father Malachi Martin, back in 1991, wrote the following. Pope John Paul II and his papal bureaucracy have been pushed or have retreated into such an isolation from the day-to-day -day governance of the church that three dreadful outcomes are possible. The first possible outcome is the day when a, quote, sizable body of clergy and laity become convinced, rightly or wrongly, that the then occupant of the apostolic throne of Peter is not perhaps never was, a validly elected pope. And remember, Father Malachi Martin was someone who had read the uh, Third Secret. Um, another uh, item I'd like to uh, bring up uh, in, in closing here uh, is to speak to your point, um, Timothy, what you said about um, declaratory nature of the church. Uh, the best way of putting this would be to say is that God has given us the ability to reason and certain things are objective. And um, if someone, for example, uh, there's an article from 1946 from, of all people, Karl Rahner, and he's commenting on Mystici Corporis Christi, the great encyclical on the mystical body of Christ by Pius Twelfth. And Pius XII says that schismatics and apostates and heretics are not members of the church. And uh, Rahner comments on that and says in 1946, it's the unanimous opinion of theologians that a material heretic, material, not formal, a material heretic is not a member of the visible church. And later on in the article, he shows how, because of the nature of the papacy, if a pope were a material heretic, 
he would ipso facto no longer be pope. Um, I can, in the questions and answers, I can get into the whole juridical nature of canon law and the distinction between formal and material heretic. So um, that's what I would say on that point. Uh, what other things would I like to say in, in closing? Well, let me cite one of the manualists before Vatican II, Father E. Sylvester Berry. When there is a prudent doubt about the validity of an election, to any official position. There is also a similar doubt whether the person so elected really has authority or not. In such a case, no one is bound to obey him, for it is an axiom that a doubtful law begets no obligation. But a superior whom no one is bound to obey is in reality no superior at all. Hence the saying of St. Robert Bellarmine, a doubtful pope is no pope. And therefore, Father Berry uh, uh, concludes here, therefore, if a papal election is really doubtful for any reason, the one elected should resign so that a new election may be held. But if he refuses to resign, it becomes the duty of the bishops to adjust the matter for although the bishops without the Pope cannot define dogmas nor make laws for the universal church, they can and ought to decide when occasion demands who is the legitimate Pope. And if the matter be doubtful, they should provide for the church by having a legitimate and undoubted pastor elected. This is what the Council of Constance rightly did. So what we have at the moment are two men dressed in white, living in the Vatican, called your holiness, giving apostolic blessings, and they both, in their own way, claim objectively a share in the papal munis. That means that it's doubtful. We need certainty on this. A, uh, what else can I say here? Um, St. Cajetan, in his commentary on the Summa of St. Thomas, if someone for a reasonable motive holds the person of the Pope in suspicion and refuses his presence and even his jurisdiction, he does not commit the delict of schism, nor any other whatsoever, provided that he be ready to accept the Pope were he not held in suspicion. It goes without saying that one has the right to avoid what is harmful and to ward off dangers. In fact, it may happen that the Pope could govern tyrannically. And that is all the easier as he is the more powerful and does not fear any punishment from anyone on earth. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll close with here is a very interesting statement from Pope Benedict himself. Uh, when uh, Seewald was interviewing him, uh, he said to him, one imagines that the Pope, the representative of Christ on earth, must have a particularly close, intimate relationship to the Lord. This was in 2016. And Benedict replies, yes, it should be that way. And I do not have the feeling that he is far away. I am always able to speak with him inwardly. Notice that Benedict used the present tense. He didn't use the past tense. He didn't say, I did not have the feeling that he was far away. This is a Freudian slip on the part of Benedict 
because he still believes that he participates in the papal ontological munis. And lastly, I'll say that in his own declaratio, he says you can go back and read it in the English or in the Latin, especially in the Latin. Benedict says that it's the nature of the munis that it is carried out not just by words and deeds, but by prayer and suffering. And then he says, look, I'm not up to the words and deeds anymore, but I can still do the prayer and suffering. I think we should take him at his word. I think we should take him at his word from 1987, from 1966, from 2016. I think we should believe Ganswine when Ganswine said that his acceptance of the papal office was irrevocable and that Benedict believes that he still uh, he still participates in the Petrine Munis. Obviously, this is, I, I'm at, we're, we're all at a loss for words. Uh, how am I doing on time? You got two and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes. Again, my thesis here is that Benedict stipulated, I will only resign to become Pope Emeritus. And if Pope Emeritus is something that is metaphysically impossible, then there was a problem, objectively speaking, with the object of his choice. We know this from basic philosophy. Um, if, if you're mistaken about the object of your choice, if your intellect is mistaken about what you're choosing, your will is not free. And Canon 332.2 says that your will has to be free if you're resigning. And it wasn't because it's doubtful, because he, he doesn't have a right understanding. Again, it's one thing to be an active bishop and then be Bishop Emeritus. You can be the Bishop of Atlanta, and then you can be the Bishop Emeritus of Atlanta. But if you're the Bishop of Rome, and you want to be the Bishop Emeritus of Rome, well, guess what? Being Bishop of Rome is ontologically inextricably linked with being Vicar of Christ. So if you want to be Bishop Emeritus of Rome, you have to simultaneously claim to be the vicar of Christ emeritus. What the hell is that? <laughs> there is no such thing. So metaphysically, it is impossible to be a pope emeritus, and that's what he chose, and therefore he committed substantial error. Um, we have to pray for the Holy Father. We have to pray for the church, uh, and we have to look at this as objectively as we can and sift the evidence uh, and see where reason and logic and evidence take us. Thank you. Thank you much, Ed. That was uh, really well done. We appreciate it. And Steve, 10 minutes to you. Uh, Ed, before, before you begin, Steve, Ed, are you down to take some questions from oh, I'm down. audience members? Yeah, Fire sure. away. Okay, cool. Both of you. Okay. We'll, after, um, Steve's yeah, we'll be done after Steve's closing 10 minutes. I appreciate both of you. Uh, very much. Go ahead. Great. Steve. Well, yeah. Well, well, up front, I'd like to thank you, Tim, again, and Dr. Matza for your your time and the invitation to debate. Uh, much appreciated. I've enjoyed it. Um, so I'm puzzled after hearing all all this. Uh, Dr. Matza cites Canon three three two point two. We were Benedict. Uh, we talks about resigning the munis, and that uh, we get the sense that Benedict didn't have a proper understanding of what munis was theoretically. Uh, and that if he had understood it, he would not have resigned or if he knew that he would lose or wouldn't get what he thought he was going to get. So it's, it's kind of complicated. Uh, but it, it seems to me it, 
kind of leads us to a reductio ad absurdum that if Benedict kind of misunderstood the munis, then it really doesn't matter what his language was. Even if he said, I renounced the Petri munis as of February 28th, uh, he couldn't resign because he didn't understand munis properly. And I think that just kind of leads us into a ridiculous situation. I think, and, and I think that's a, it kind of just demonstrates that the theory doesn't work. Uh, now, during uh, Dr. Matz's uh, closing uh, statement, again, we heard referencing references to mind reading, uh, Freudian slips, uh, uh, again, talking about, uh, I think Benedict stipulated this. We don't know that Benedict stipulated anything. We have no evidence that he stipulated anything. Uh, he, uh, Dr. Matza, even if uh, one arguendo says, yeah, maybe he had some strange idea about what being an ex-pope was, that had nothing to do with his resignation. He fully resigned. He, he said he, he understood that he fully resigned the papacy. He understood that. He vacated it. The see of Rome will be vacant. We see that in Normus Nanulus, where he talks about uh, the election of one true pope, Latin singular, there is no other. So he knows, that we, now the principle of contradiction, you cannot both be and not be at the same time. He knew he was not pope. Uh, Canon 331 talks about uh, the, the munis given a special way to the Bishop of Rome. He was no longer Bishop of Rome. Therefore, he could not have the munis in any real way, the Petri munis in any real way. Uh, so he might have, now, I think a lot of things that we've seen, whether it be the seawall interviews or the last audience, which really we didn't get in too much uh, today, uh, we see, I think we can see that he, he viewed it as um, I'm leaving uh, my, this office, but I still have this sense of responsibility. I had I had a legal, you know, papal official uh, uh, responsibility for, for, for the church. Now I'm leaving. I'm just not going to be like saying, hey, see you guys later. Thanks for all the fish. I'm going to... Uh, the beach, to my condo on the beach. No, he, that's not how he talks about, that's not how uh, being a pastor in the church works. You still have this kind of sense of responsibility. Uh, I think that's all he meant in terms of ontology. When you become a pope, you become kind of responsible for the church. And I think we see exactly what he means in the last audience. And if I can use my time here, I'll just kind of read through it and maybe make some commentary along the way. Uh, he says in the last audience, he returns to his uh, his election, the time when he was elected. Here, allow me to go back once again to 19 April 2005. The real gravity of the decision was also due to the fact that from the moment on, I was engaged, always and forever by the Lord. Anyone who accepts the Petri ministry no longer has privacy. So how does he mean privacy? Well, he tells us, he says, in Benedict, he belongs always and completely to everyone, to the whole church. In a manner of speaking, the private dimension of his life is completely eliminated. So here he's talking about uh, the always and forever is his relationship with people. And that's probably why he even used the word ministry, uh, it, why he switched the word ministry in his declaratio, because he he's, has a very personal dimension, a very personal uh, attachment to the people of the church. And I think that's very touching. He goes on. Uh, I was able to rec I was I was able to experience and, and I experience it even now that one receives one's life precisely when one gives it away. Earlier, I said that many people who love uh, the Lord also love the successor of Peter, Saint Peter, and feel great affection for him. That the Pope truly has brothers and sisters, sons and daughters throughout the world, and that he feels secure in the embrace of your communion because he no longer belongs to himself, 
He belongs to all and all to him. So that's what he's talking about. When you become Pope, you kind of get, get you, you become father of everyone. But then he goes on to say, and this is the one that uh, a lot of the Benny Plinus always kind of resort to this without kind of, I think, analyzing the whole thing together. Always in for the always in quotes is also a forever. There can no longer be a return to the private sphere. What does he mean by private sphere? He's talking about the private sphere. He's not saying I still continue to be Pope always and forever. No, he says my decision to resign the active exercise of the ministry does not revoke this. It does not revoke the privacy thing. And he goes on to explain that. I do not return to a private life, to a life of travel, meetings and receptions, conferences, and so on. I am not abandoning the cross, but remaining in a new way. Not the same way, not as Pope, at the side of the crucified Lord. I no longer bear the power of governance for the, gov for the power of governance of the church, but in the service of prayer. That's what he's talking about, praying for everyone. Uh, in the service of prayer, I remain, so to speak, in the enclosure of St. Peter. Now, two ways of maybe understanding that. The enclosure of St. Peter, kind of a figurative sense of uh, the Petrine office, that he's just because he, he, he kind of had all these uh, his, his attachment to the whole church. He's just not going to say so long, goodbye, thanks for all the fish, I'm going to the beach. Uh, no, he's saying uh, he's going to stay in the service of prayer. He's going to you know, keep on praying for his sons and daughters that he had, once had as Pope. But he says, so to speak, in the enclosure of Peter. So to speak means figuratively, metaphorically. He's not talking literally. Uh, someone else, uh, Betty Plantis once said to me when I pointed it out to him, but he's not saying I'm, I'm literally going to be in the enclosure of Peter, just figuratively. They said, well, actually, the enclosure of St. Peter, he meant the Vatican. Okay, well, fine. Maybe he just meant the Vatican being the enclosure of Peter. But that doesn't help the Benny Plenus case. So the point is, uh, the always and forever, uh, I think, is well explained in the audience. I have an article on my site that goes into uh, much more detail. Now, just a few other points to clean up. Gonswain. Gonswain should have nothing to do with anything. He spoke in 2016. Gonswain is not uh, Benedict. We should interpret Benedict through Benedict's Benedict's official acts. We have that in the Declaratio, uh, plain and clear. And we actually read it right here. Uh, some of his last official acts as Pope. It's very clear what he was doing. He used, uh, he used, he might have used the words uh, munis and uh, uh, ministerium and ministerio interchangeably, but the logic of how he uses it, I mean, certainly by definitions, they can be interchanged. Uh, Cardinal Burke said they were interchanged, or he believed they're interchanged. Excuse me. But the force of the logic, he talks about in the first season of Munis, he's talking about uh, no longer having the strength to, uh, to, to continue. And then he goes down and uses ministerium in the same, almost the same exact wording. The two are linked logically, and that leads then to his statement that he's going to renounce the Petrine ministry using ministerio, uh, and that he's uh, going to, uh, that he's resigning in such a way that the chair of St. Peter, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, see of, uh, the see of Rome, the see of Peter, will be vacant. And a new pope has to be elected. Nothing can be clear. That's what he meant. He understood he was not going to be pope. Uh, he was not going to have the munis in any kind of special way, in any true sense of the papacy, any longer. Now, uh, if you want to talk about emeritus, well, gee, uh, Bishop Emeritus, it really means this and that. He's using, when you apply it to pope, he's not using it in a, univ in a univocal sense. We're using it in an analogous sense. It's an, honor, it's an honorary title in terms of uh, being addressed as his holiness. Well, you know, people call President Obama, President, well, ex-President Obama, President Obama. Uh, it, it's, just, it's just a title. Uh, it is confusing, and these things should be revisited. I, I, I'd probably say that 
Benedict's uh, resignation, how he handled it, I think he single-handedly made the case as to why former popes should probably be locked away on some mountaintop <laughs> monastery, because there's a danger of a lot of mischief if they're allowed. Sure. sure. Imagine if there was a Pope Francis emeritus, you know, imagine his mouth running all the time, lock him away <laughs> in a monastery somewhere. So uh, I, I think what we've seen with the evidence is the Declaratio was clear. He uh, he gave up his office in terms of substantial error. Uh, Dr. Mazza has not proven his case. Yeah, he's made a lot of uh, leaps of, of mind reading along the way. He's stipulating that Benedict would not have resigned if he understood he would lose the emeritus reality or whatever. That is pure speculation, pure mind reading. Uh, we're looking at legal documents of the church. If you destabilize the church, if you're going to be thinking of all these, well, maybe he thought this, maybe he thought that. Uh, what do we do uh, if we put him back on the throne and then someone discovers 10 years from now, well, gee, he did write a document where he said, he did, he did uh, uh, word it correctly. You know, so uh, we, we're opening ourselves to destabilize the whole structure of the church. If you're going to be you know, looking back 30, 40 years of what someone said and then try to you know, stuff it into a document, which is otherwise pretty clear. Um, your other question was about the declaratory power of the church. Yeah, yeah, you got 10 seconds, but um, you would close with your last 10 seconds, Steve, on, I'll just pause it here, on, uh, yeah, a point that pro probably would ostensibly favor you. The, the declaratory power of the church is uh, elemental to what the ecclesium on earth is, right? Yeah, well, I mean, well, in terms of reference to all that's going on with uh, Francis and Benedict, uh, ultimately, you have to rely on the judgment of the church. You know, you know people should not be going running off and following people who say that Francis is definitely an anti-pope. Uh, they're just going to you know, put themselves in, in a situation of schism, potentially. Uh, just, you know, pray fast, you know, know your theology, uh, you know, stay, stay, in a, stay in a state of grace. And, uh, you know, maybe read these different uh, theories and things like that, but you got to wait for the church to, to tell you okay. what, what the answer is. Okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, very good. Excellent. As a matter of fact, let us now, all right, all right, all right. Very, very nice job uh, by both of you. I appreciate your time. Let's just jump right to questions. Uh, a lot of them are beating around the bush or saying quite directly, you know, what of the declaratory power of the church? And I, I might just, I might just jump in with an FAQ and kind of put that as directly as I can. But this first question, I'll give you each uh, 30 seconds for most of these questions. Let's be strict here uh, with the 30 seconds as well. It comes from Mr. Patrick Coffin and uh, Steve, I'll give you a crack at it afterwards. He frames it for Matza, uh, Dr. Matza. Is it known or even knowable so far whether all red hat appointments, all bowls and cyclicals are all null and void if Francis the uber merciful is declared an anti-pope. I think that's, that's uh coffin-esque sarcasm. Uh, so, so Dr. Matza, the question is namely for you, Steve, you can make a remark afterwards, 30 seconds. Well, if Benedict's resignation was invalid, it means the election of Francesco was invalid. And that means Francesco is an anti-pope. But it doesn't mean that his appointments would not be valid because there's something called um, su su jurisdiction su supplication or su uh, supply jurisdiction, excuse supply jurisdiction. me. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are people who can discourse on that better than myself. But uh, 
good good enough good enough answer thank you uh it's that's straight for now um people um google supply jurisdiction it's a it's a real thing canon law uh positive law church law uh but steve did you want to say a word about that even though it was namely for presupposes dr Motz's worldview on this uh not on that specifically, but I thought just a little bit of uh, cleanup on Gonswin, because we really really didn't go too much into it, or I, uh, the way I structured my comments, I didn't get too much into it. Uh, Gonswain, uh, the way I view his speech is, yeah, there's a lot of over-the-top stuff, but it really is a panegyrical uh, uh, speech. Uh, he's speaking at a book release about the life of, Fr- of Benedict. So a lot of his stuff, uh, I think, can fit into that, that, that reading of the last audience, kind of fits into that. And in terms of expanded uh, ministry, again, he's just talking about uh, as is Emeritus, that he has a spiritual attachment to the church and he's going to pray. I mean, he talks about Benedict being a power station of prayer uh, next to uh, St. Peter's. So I think that's, that's the way we'll uh, There we go. We'll, uh, yeah, very nice. Thank you. Okay. Um, sorry for the strict nature of this, but it's the only way to keep it under control. Uh, I'll, I'll go to, I think this is primarily for Dr. Matza again from a, a viewer. If Benedict Sixteenth is still Pope, why has he never once made a claim to that effect? This is sort of foundational question. Steve, you can have 30 seconds after Ed. Go ahead. He's like a married couple that thinks they're married. I mean, he, he, he thinks he left. I mean, for purposes of this discussion today, uh, uh, he, I will argue that he thinks that he's left the office. But just like people that are married invalidly think they're married, but they're not. That's what's going on. Okay. Steve, you want to say something? I mean, I mean, it just I mean, there's, there's so many hurdles to jump to to make the substantial error or any of the many plenist arguments. Uh, uh, Benedict thinking he's still pope, or I think he is still pope, or, or is not pope. I mean, but him believing he's not pope uh, is is such a difficult one. I mean, uh, Doctor Monza can convince Benedict that he's still pope. Uh, even then, I'd probably say he's uh, <laughs> advanced years. You still have to wonder if if, he, if he's senile. I and mean, senile people in old age, people in old age, can say a lot of things. The president of the United States. Even then, it's going to be troublesome. Even if uh, Dr. Mazza could convince him that he is. Uh, All right, so there we are. Can I follow up on that since he addressed me directly? Oh, yeah. Feel like how about six seconds? <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I didn't go into it in this debate, but there is a difference between ministry, ministerio, and munis, meaning office. Maybe that's another debate for another day. Sure. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a heavily, heavily uh, tendentious or or controverted uh, distinction between ministerium and, and munis. That maybe so maybe, but there's something to worth uh, to to that's worthwhile as a potential future debate. Uh, another question for I'll, I'll pitch it to both of you. We'll just go with uh, Dr. Matza first. Uh, I'm going to clean these questions up a little bit, but I want to be respectful to the questioners. He asks, in the past, has there ever been a pope who has resigned? The answer is yes, of course. What was his title afterwards when he or actually they left office? If it happened, uh, what year did a pope ever resigned? So I I should have cleaned that up a little more. Um, Yeah, go ahead, Dr. Matza. This is church history. Uh, there, There is, I will say this preliminarily to the questioner, there is a suggestive uh, set of distinctions between those popes who have resigned and Benedict XVI. Uh, almost a distinction of kind, though that doesn't mean I'm, I'm throwing in lots with the Benny Plenis because I'm not, but that's what makes this so sticky is it, in all of the cases where it's happened, there are meaningful distinctions. I'm not sure what the meaning is, 
but they were much, much, much less sticky resignations, uh, Dr. Matza, than Steve. There are two papal resignations for which we have objective proof in the 2,000-year history of the church, and both of those have occurred uh, in the last uh, 800 years. And the first is Pope St. Celestine, who gets a mention in Dante's uh, Inferno, but that's a topic for another day, uh, who was a monk and he wasn't up to the job. And so uh, he resigned and uh, Pope Boniface VIII became Pope. Um, and uh, Pope Boniface VIII promptly uh, locked him in a, in a cell and uh, mistreated him uh, until he died. Yeah, uh, so we're, just... that, yeah we're out of time. I, I, um, Ed, I'm sure you agree at least at the bare minimum, you agree with uh, the spirit of what I'm saying about those two resignations were not nearly so sticky. Uh, oh, yeah. Steve, yeah. I think we all agree about that. I think, yeah. Steve, would you agree with that as well? These two resignations are much cleaner than the way Frank, uh, Benedict did it. Yeah, and Dr. Massa, he's a church historian. I think they'd be the only two where the person claimed they're kind of resigning because of their weakness and all that. So I think that's really the only two like that. There's been others for other reasons. But real quick, uh, just again, just to reiterate that Benedict thought he was doing what the other popes did in terms of what they were. He thought they were emeriti too. Now, he didn't say that specifically, but that comes through certainly implicitly in the uh, his, his letter to uh, Bramuller. So he thought he was doing what the church does, what has done before him. And I just quickly throw out regarding Celestine, uh, since it was kind of new uh, or believed to be new, he kind of, I think he wrote a uh, like a note or some sort of decree beforehand saying papal papes, popes can resign. So I'd say that if, if Benedict thought he was doing something different than had been done in the past, that he would have, uh, I think as a theologian, write something else, be clear, hey, I'm resigning, but I'm kind of keeping this. That would have been an official document. He didn't do that, which I think is evidence that he did not think he was doing something different. Steve, uh, is it fair? Is it? I mean, let me just say, as the mod here, I wouldn't have had Be uh, uh, Celestine or Boniface on my show on a, my YouTube channel. Of course, I think they only had AOL slow uh, dial-up connection back then in their day, but I wouldn't have had either of them on my show because there was not nearly so much stickiness, not nearly so much fog of war. So do, do you, Steve, acknowledge the way I do? And I'm, I'm, you know, if I, if I had to pick a side, I'm definitely, um, definitely favor your position. I acknowledge the weirdness of this, or I wouldn't have wasted everyone's time with it here today if it were Celestine or Boniface. What do you say? I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I think certainly, uh, I mean, I think, I think Dr. Mach, I think rightly in, in his uh, interview with uh, Patrick Coffin's show, I joked that, you know, to leave the Benedict kind of mess up a resignation. I think, I think that, I think, uh, I don't know, I, I agree with all the particulars of how Dr. Mach gets to that conclusion, but I think that that's, that, that, that's right. I mean, uh, how he's done it, the appearance, dressing in white, even though I, I don't see those as strictly problematic, if you really get down to it, but the visit, the appearance to everyone out there is confusing. Uh, it would have been better off if he just flew away to a mountaintop <laughs> and stayed there and it just kept his mouth shut. The and next question. Uh, Liz, I'm sorry, Tim, uh, I just need six seconds here because a point of fact, sure. um, in, in the Seawald book, Benedict says explicitly what I did was completely different from St. Celestine. I can find you chapter and verse if you'd like. Uh, okay, it's, it's all right. I, I, I'm aware of that point. And okay. uh, 
of course, the subjective, objective, epistemic uh, split dichotomy in, in your view and, and Mr. O'Reilly's would account for, you know, whether think, or think, not think, think, the distinction between what Benedict thought he was doing matters. And that, that that's a whole other debate. So if I just, uh, the, the, the distinction was, I think, because I remember that re- reading in Seawall the other night, I think this, this, this distinction was, is that he went to a monastery and he didn't. He's, he's kind of doing this prayer thing for the church. And I think that was the distinction, I think. Either Seawald was drawing or Bennett had made. Okay, uh, this one, <laughs> I'll, I'll be question uh, answerer specific at this point. Uh, where did Stephen get that killer Roman helmet? That thing is so cool. I think this question is for Dr. Matza. I'm kidding. That's for Steve. Uh, I think it came from Italy, I believe. It is dope. Whoever asked that question, that's that's a good call to question because it's dope. Uh, for Dr. Matza, why does oh no, that's another that's a repeat of why does Benedict make no claim on uh, for Dr. Matza? They called you Dr. Mazda, which would be <laughs> I get that all the time. Yeah, endless Miatas, um, as far as the I can RX eights. Um, assuming your position is correct, what are we to make of all the cardinals kneeling down and kissing Francis's ring in submission? Are we not to follow the Cardinals? Uh, Francis doesn't want his ring kissed. You, you can watch the video. And as a matter of fact, when he came out on the Logia, uh, he didn't call himself Pope. He kept referring to himself as the Bishop of Rome or, you know, he, he didn't refer to himself as the Vicar of Christ. He, he took that out of the annuario. Um, yeah, it's very problematic. But before we go to Stephen on this, doesn't your view presuppose that Pope Francis is is not in all on all this and that he he wants to be pope even if you were anti-pope like yes or no I I just I'm unclear on that for purposes of our debate today uh yet no Francis thinks he's pope okay so why would he not uh, this is my own follow-up admittedly why would he then be complicit with not wanting his ring kissed ostensibly uh well uh, I, I, I'm not know, trying I, to bombard. I just, that, that's <laughs> something to think about. I, you know, I could, I could speculate on it, but um, I, I would not, for today, we, we shouldn't speculate. Fair enough, yeah. yeah fair Otherwise it would be an answer to a question not asked, but, but uh, Steve, <laughs> did you want to weigh in on this for 30 seconds? I'm not trying to tip my hand. I just, that was just a spontaneous insight. It happened. Uh, uh, I, I, I don't have anything specific on that. I think, I think, uh, Francis uh, thinks he's Pope. I think he, he's just trolling everybody. So with all these dropping the Vicar of Christ or whatever, that's just a troll uh, conservative Catholics. You know, that's, you know, I don't read anything good to anything he does. So. And I, I, I would like to say this is an area of agreement between Stephen and myself. I think we can, we're, we're both on board with, uh, there's a problem here with Francis, that just to put it lightly. Oh, I, I, I would, say, I would say, if I could, just if I had a few more, a few more seconds, said I do believe in terms of all these BIP theories and things like that is that the the, the one that I see as possible because uh, it has an invalidating condition and it would be that that there was some sort of plot there was a that Bergoglio plotted to undermine the papacy mm. of Benedict and obviously plotted to get elected. That's something that Burke right. uh, had actually kind of, not, 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 I want to get Burke in trouble, but he was talking to a hypothetical on Patrick Coffin's show. And that's, I think we, we talked about in our last, the show I did with you, Tim. And yeah. I think that's yeah. an angle to look at. And I actually think that the Regolians are trolling sort of Catholics. It's like, we're, 
we touched the raw nerve. They touched the raw nerve with uh, in terms of Murphy O'Connor and Casper about what was going on, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh look, substantial error, and everybody kind of runs over there. I think I think the real action, if there is any action, is on is on what uh, undermining the papacy of Benedict. I think that's where if people have time to look finances. That's that's the area to look. Yeah, I, I think. I think I also agree with you on that. Well, we're, we're all kind of agreeing here. So let's go out on a high note. There are a couple other questions. Sorry, we didn't get to those is something of a discretionary authority vested in the mod. And I, I wield it like a tyrant. Um, therefore we're, we're going to, we're going to cut out on those. Cause I like going out on a high note. If people like this, which uh, you know, the comments were uh, lighting up uh, to that effect that they did like this, then we'll consider a second one in the near future. Uh, Dr. Matza, Mr. O'Reilly, I really appreciate you guys' time. I think you both comported yourself and acquitted yourselves very well. Thank you very much. I might weigh in on you know this topic in a show in a day or two or three anyway myself. But for now, thank you guys very much. Thank everyone for viewing. Des Volt, everyone. Peace. Thank you all. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Dr. Matza. Thank you. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit.